0: Thank you, David and Lois, for helping us in our music this morning. We are continuing in our study of the Gospel of John, the Gospel of John, and today we are in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 22 to 31. This is an incredibly rich and powerful uh, text of scripture in terms of what it tells us of the Gospel, of our salvation, of our God, of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's uh, with fear and trepidation I come out into this. It's like there are so many goodies in here. How can we do it justice? I hope you had a big breakfast because this is going. No, I didn't. I'll try and be merciful. We we finished the um, the previous section at verse 21, and and starting John chapter 10 verse 22, it's it's a new narrative. And we can see that because it's a new time frame. Uh, We're told it's a new time, it's a new festival. So starting at verse 21, I'll read to verse 31. John chapter 10, verse 22, I should say. Now it was the feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ... My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Well, if you you look at your outline, you know we typically have our three points uh, there in the in the hymnal or in the hymnal in the. in the bulletin, you'll see, where normally we have the outline there and uh, space for you to take notes. Now, the first point, to, uh, we start with the suspense in the stoa, security of the sheep, and stones for the shepherd. Uh, so I'll explain some of that terminology in a little bit, But, but I had to... Uh, when I got to the second and third point, I saw some alliterations, so then I had to really get working with the thesaurus and, and come up with some uh, points to make the first point. It'll become clear later on. You'll actually understand it. Uh, first of all, we notice he says it was the feast of dedication. John has been helping us through the Gospel of John to mark the feasts, and that helps us kind of keep up with the chronology of things. Uh, for example, in, in John chapter 6, verse 4, we're told it was the Passover. Now the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was near, he says. Now Passover is one of the spring festivals, and that happens March, April. And so Passover, we, 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 have a pass, we, we kind of celebrate a Passover Seder the Thursday before Easter to think about what our Lord was doing uh, on that Thursday night of the week of the uh, Passion of Christ. That, that was in the spring, March, April. And they're on a lunar calendar, and so the dates move around a little bit. But in March, April, spring is when they had a Passover. And then uh, we see in chapter 7, verse 2. Now the feast, the Jews, Feast of Tabernacles was that at hand. Sometimes you'll hear at the Feast of Booths or in Hebrew, it's Sukkot. Uh, that's in the month of Tishri, which is September, October. So that's a fall festival. And so he's kind of marking it along. So there was the Passover in the spring. Then we came to the fall. And now we're told it was the Feast of Dedication. The Feast of Dedication. Um, The Hebrew word for dedication is Hanukkah. That means dedication. And we we know about Hanukkah. We see it around uh, Christmas time. And that goes back to an event that this is not actually recorded in the Old Testament. Hanukkah is based on an event that happened between the Old Testament and the New Testament. So it's not one of the feasts of the law, but it's a feast that the Jews continue to observe. In, in a nutshell, uh, the Old Testament closes with Israel back in the land and under Persian rule. Then up arises Alexander the Great. He conquers the Persians and now Israel is under Greek rule. Uh, and. And then Alexander died, and his empire was split up between some of his generals. And then the, the, the two parts of the empire that mattered most were the north, up in Syria, and in Egypt. Two different Greek uh, empires. And with Israel between them, they were constantly uh, caught in the interchange. Well, there was one occasion when the, the king of the north... Um, Antiochus Epiphanes, or Antiochus IV, I hope you're writing this all down, <laughs> uh, wanted to go to war and conquer the king of the south, the Ptolemies. And he got as far, far as the, um, the outskirts of Alexandria, and he was going to conquer and, and kind of unite those two regions into one big empire. But as he approached Alexandria, he met a Roman general and said, What are you doing? He said, Well, I'm coming here to conquer, uh, conquer Egypt. And the general said, you do not have the permission of the Roman Senate, so you need to go home. And so here is this king, he has his army with us, he's ready to conquer, and and here's this Roman general. He says, I need time to think. And the general said, that's fine. And he took his staff and drew a circle around him and said, I want your answer before you leave the circle. Romans have a way of communicating the king realized he might be able to beat the southern uh, Greek kingdom. He couldn't tangle with Rome, and so he went back. Well, word reached Israel. He'd been a terrible tyrant. He'd been uh, really oppressive of all the Jewish uh, traditions and laws. And so when they heard he was coming back so quickly, they knew something was wrong. It's kind of like recently I had my car in with the mechanic and just to check some things out, and he came back out and he said... When I come back this quickly, that's not good news. <laughs> so we've got some work to do. Well, they heard him coming back quickly. said, well, he must have conquered. Rumors were that King Antiochus had died. And, uh, and, and, and so they were celebrating. Well, he arrives at Jerusalem, and they're celebrating his death and defeat. And he's mad. And he, has, he still has his army. And so he conquers, and he, and he desecrates. He, he uh, sends his troops into the temple. They set up idol worship and they slaughter and sacrifice a pig on the sacred altar. It gets bad. Well, that starts a rebellion. And you may have heard of the Maccabeans. That's actually a name, one of the the Hasmonean family, uh, this priestly family that that led this rebellion Uh, for like three years. They were fighting. One of them, Judas, they called him the Hammer. And he wasn't a lawyer. But they called him the Hammer, and that's Maccabee. And so Judas the the Hammer, and all, and, and then came. They called all of them the Hammers. They um, they fought back. They fought back, and amazingly, they defeated the, the Syrian uh, Greeks, and they gained their liberation. And the first biz- part of business on the twenty fifth of the month of Kislev. Uh, was they built a new altar. Uh, they, uh, they, they had a new altar that, for sacrifice. But the problem was they needed to you know, light the, the, the menorah, in, the, in the, the lamp in the temple, but all they could find was one jar with one day's worth of oil. It was going to take them eight days to get the oil they needed, the holy and sacred oil, um, to, to really do things right amazingly, that one jar of one day's oil lasted for eight days. That's why our Jewish friends, when they celebrate Hanukkah, they have, the, and, uh, they have a menorah with actually nine candles in it. Uh, eight. The one in the middle is called the servant candle. You light the other candles with it, but it's to remember the eight days. And, the, and they, they have a, um, a motto of this. There was a, that there was a great miracle there. So Hanukkah was celebrating the rededication uh, of the temple and the liberation of Israel and and that they were now an independent, free nation. And that hadn't been true since 586 B.C. when the Babylonians destroyed them. They'd been under Babylonian, Persian, and Greek dominion, and now they were free. So Hanukkah was, is, a, is a special time of celebration for them. So we're told it was Hanukkah that, that when Jesus came back to the temple. This is in the winter. The last festival we saw Booth's fall, so it's, it's a couple of months now that he is back in Jerusalem, and we're told it was winter. And that's probably, you know, every Jew would know, so of course it was winter. That's like, you know, saying... On Christmas, it was winter. Of course, in Texas, we don't quite know what winter is. But but most people understand, of course, Christmas is winter. Um, So this is probably for the Gentiles, just to get a little perspective. It was winter, and that's why he was in this area where he was. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Now, that word for porch, you might have a colonnade or something like that in your translations. It's the Greek word stoa. S-T-O-A, that's in the outline. And if you have much of a historian of uh, architecture, that's a covered colonnade, a covered area that where the roof is held up by pillars. And it's called Solomon's uh, stoa or porch or colonnade because apparently this is the one part of the temple area that had survived from the days of Solomon. So when the Babylonians destroyed all the temple, this... Colonnade remained, and so it was a special thing. and And we find out later in the New Testament, it was a place that the 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 Christians liked to gather. Rabbis apparently would often teach their courses in here. and And in Acts chapter five, we're told the Christians gathered there. through Through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. So after Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, and the establishment of the church. They would gather in, in this area, and the, the apostles would be teaching, evangelizing, training of believers. So it's in that area, and tonight I hope to show you pictures of the Temple Mount and, and drawings and w- what that colonnade looked like and where it was. But that's where our Lord went, and, and we're, it said that one reason he was there was, uh, it, it being winter, it was a covered area. And so, you know, when it's nice in spring, you... You can get out and, and enjoy the sun. I, I've shared with you a number of times. That was something I, I learned when I was in Israel. Um, I got there in the summer. And, and and it wasn't until in the fall I noticed something was something had, had happened. Something was different. And I realized for the first time I, I saw a cloud. And the whole time I'd been in Israel, I hadn't seen a cloud until the fall. You know, they have two rainy seasons. And so a lot of times you could teach outdoors and that's fine. But... In the winter, you need to take cover. And so he was in the colonnade, the stoa of Solomon. And so now you have um, part of the explanation of our first point, suspense in the stoa. Now verse 24, Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now that that idea of surrounding him sounds a little ominous, and maybe it's supposed to be. But I think what they're saying is, We're going to nail this guy we're going to nail down what he is saying. And so they, 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 you know, you're not going anywhere. They surrounded him. Kind of like, you, you know, how reporters sometimes want to go after the president, get him to say something. And in this case, they've got him surrounded so he can't escape and run behind the curtains. They surrounded him. And they said, How long do you keep us in doubt? Now, that word to keep in doubt literally, how long do you lift up our souls? That's kind of a, that would be a very literal and, and doesn't really help us. But basically, how long are you going to keep us hanging, is what they're saying. Or how long do you keep us suspended in suspense? Give us a plain answer. Are you the Messiah? Tell us plainly. But anyway, so you see my point now. Finally, you can understand the, the point. Suspense in the stoa. So here they are in Solomon's stoa and saying, you've been keeping us in suspense. We want a straight answer. Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Well, then we come now to the section I'm calling security, the sheep chapter 10, verses 25 to 30. And we read in there, Jesus answers them. But, but as we, he, he approaches them and will show how his answer to them, I, I felt like it's important I bring back the fact this was Hanukkah. What's the question they're asking? How long are you going to keep us in suspense? Are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? Are you the one who will deliver us? Now, they're not thinking from our sin, but from Roman oppression. Hanukkah celebrated their independence but it didn't last long. By sixty three BC, so about hundred years later, um, they once again came. They were then came under Roman oppression. And when G- Jesus, during Jesus' lifetime, stop- they're entirely under Roman oppression. And the people are longing and praying, God, when will you send us? When will you liberate us? And of course, you know, at, on a on a holiday that celebrates liberation from pagan oppression. They look around and see the Romans amount around them, pagans, idolaters, and, and oppressing them. And there's a longing for the Messiah that will rise up and conquer the Romans. That's what they want. And so Hanukkah, there's more of a fervor and expectancy because the whole theme is celebrating independence when they're not independent. Kind of takes the edge off independence day when really it's oppression day and it makes it even more painful so are you the Messiah? tell us plainly and Jesus answered I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my father's name they bear witness of me what he says is I have already given you the answer now he, he was very clear for example, in telling the Samaritan woman, I'm the Messiah. And he tells his disciples, who am I? When Peter says, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, he says in Greek, bingo. Well, that's not in the Greek. But, but he says, you, that's not your idea. God told you that. That's God's truth. But he hasn't been quite so clear here uh, in, the, in the large Jewish settings. Why? I think the best answer is because if he says, I'm the Messiah, they start sharpening their swords. They have a wrong conception of what Messiah is going to do. He came to die for our sins this first time. He's going to come back and conquer. But this isn't the conquer the Romans time. And so if he just said, I am the Messiah, they would take that as time to rebel. And so he says, I've already given you that. I've already told you who I am. And let me just point you to a few passages that are examples of that from the Gospel of John. John chapter 5, verse 17. In John 5, 17, we read, Jesus answered them, My Father has been working till now, and I have been working. I work with the Father. He, God is my Father, and I'm at work with him. That's before John 5:17. John 6 29. John 6, 29, Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in me whom he sent. That's pretty highly saying, um, I'm the answer. That was John six twenty nine, 29. In John 7, 37, on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I am the fountain of true fountain of water. I satisfy thirst. Who could say that? If I said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, you would assume I've got a cooler of water bottles. And he's saying much more than that. That was John 7.37 and John 8.12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. It's a powerful statement John 8, 12. in John 8:12. In John 8:58, he says, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was I am. That is such a powerful and clear profession of his deity. It was so clear they took up stones to stone him. You can't claim to be God. You can't, unless you are God. And then John 10, verse 7, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And he also went on and said, I am the good shepherd. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. We all know Psalm 23. Who's the good shepherd? The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus I am the good shepherd. So what he's saying is, I've told you. But you don't want to hear is the problem. He, but he goes on to say, and I've done works to confirm that. It's one thing to make the claims. But he says, the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. And the crowd got that. Remember back in chapter 10, verse 21. When some were saying Jesus must be demonic or he's gone or he's mad, and others were saying, "Wait a minute! Demons do not give sight to the ones who are born blind." That Jesus has done miracles that have never been seen. He's healed the leper. He's raised the dead. He's caused the blind to see. Those are messianic. In fact, remember when John the Baptist was in prison. John knew he was the forerunner of the Messiah. And so he, he made, you know, said, prepare, make, make ready the way of the Lord. And then he ends up in prison. And frankly, he's starting to struggle. Wait. If you're the Messiah, why am I in prison? That doesn't sound very messianic. And so he, he sends messengers, and they basically say, Would you, would you just ask Jesus? If he's the one, or if we're supposed to look for someone else? The answer Jesus gives is is important in Luke chapter 7, verse 22. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. See what he's saying? I've done the messianic works. And so, what Jesus is saying here, and they're saying, tell us plainly, he says, it's there. Look at what I've said about myself and look at what I've done. And so, he's saying, his words and his works show that he's the Messiah. But now he goes further. And so, he's saying, the problem is not on my side. Have you ever had a problem with your internet connection? Please don't start. <laughs> I'm not calling for a griping session here. But sometimes you call, you know, uh, you know what you do is you set up a nice sandwich, some coffee, because it's going to be a while. And you call customer support or non-support, whatever the title is. But you call and you wait. And the first, you know, typical answer is, well, the problem's on your side. So do this and do this and do this and do this. And like, you know, they'll ask you some really probe and technical questions. Is your modem plugged in? So you go through, you know, it's, but the first thing is the problem is on, not on our side, it's on your side. And that's basically what Jesus is saying. It's not me. We have a problem here, and it's not on my side. I have sent out the message. You are not receiving it. You do not believe, he says, because you're not of my sheep, as I said to you. So he said before, You know, my sheep hear my voice. What he's saying is their unbelief is an unwillingness to believe. And what he's saying is his sheep, we mentioned last time, and this is speaking of the doctrine of God's election, those whom God has enabled to believe Believe and are His sheep, and He's saying, "What, what your unbelief is evidence you're not My sheep. It's evidence of your problem." Now He's not saying that election makes the, that makes them unable to believe. Rather, He's saying we all are rebellious, but God's grace is He chooses some and enables them to believe. How do we know which ones are His? They believe. Those are the ones who that's the evidence of election is they believe. Those who do not believe are not of God's elect. They're not his sheep. And so he's saying is your very unbelief. He says I've been I've been out there. I've said who I am. I've done the miracles to confirm it. Your unbelief is evidence that you are not my sheep. You're not God's chosen ones. So again, the idea of election is not an excuse for unbelief. It's not God making me unbelieve. And I mentioned Spurgeon's quote last time. God has never turned down anyone who wants to believe. The problem is, in our rebellious nature, we won't believe. It takes—we We need God's grace. The initiative starts with him. We'll see that more in this passage. So... I wonder what their immediate response was to that statement. The last thing they want to be is a follower of Jesus. And so you see what he's saying? You don't believe because you're not my sheep. And they're thinking, we don't want to be your sheep. We want, well, by now they've already been plotting his death. We want you dead. We don't want to follow you. We want you out of the way. The very way they're surrounding him here. This, this is uh, confrontational and oppositional. They aren't hungering to know God's truth. They're looking for words that can be a trap. You ever, you ever, I can't watch them very long. You ever watch some of these press conferences? They're not. No one asks a question because they want to understand. And they never get an answer. You know, so they're always looking for a, a gotcha. They're trying to make news. They're trying to trap you. And the politicians, knowing that, they don't give any answers. And so uh, it's like I, I heard about one of the struggles our Marines had in, in, in the Middle East, and they'd try and deal with the people in the villages. They say they always talk in circles. And you can spend hours, and you never get anything. You just talk in circles. Well, that's kind of like watching a press conference. But, but here, you know, there, Jesus gave them a direct answer. Your problem is you're not my sheep. They don't want to be sheep. This wasn't a question, help us, would you please to understand who you are? This was an attack, a trap, just like, should we pay taxes? And they thought, either way he answers, we've got him. In this day of celebrating independence, Hanukkah, well, actually it was an eight-day process, but in celebrating Hanukkah, if he announces he's the Messiah, they could go straight to the governor, the Roman governor, and say, hey, He's claiming to be the rebel leader. Go get him. Verse 27, Jesus goes on. My sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And so he's again making it by way of contrast. They won't listen, they won't hear. Jesus' sheep do hear, and they follow. So they hear, and they believe, they follow the Puritans used to say uh, there were two signs that you're the Lord's sheep. You know, it was common back then. You, could mark, you would mark your sheep with a distinctive mark on the ear. And, and so, but they would say, the Lord's sheep, you can tell them by their ear and their foot. With their ear they hear, with the foot they follow. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. They recognize who I am and they follow me. And he says, and I know them. So here he's talking about relationship. Again, the shepherd knows his sheep, and he will die for his sheep. He, he cares for his sheep. He leads them. He guides them. He, he nurtures them. So my sheep believe and follow me, and I am the shepherd that cares for them. John, again, Psalm 23. So they, I know them, and they follow me. So it's not enough to believe things about Jesus. He's saying true belief follows Jesus, obeys Jesus, recognizes him as the shepherd to follow. So what's he saying? You want plain truth? The plain truth is you've got the plain truth, but you are unwilling to hear. The problem is not on my side. It's on your side. Your unwillingness to hear, and that's evidence you're not God's people. Well, then he goes on in verses 28 and 29. My sheep hear me and follow me. And I give them, verse 28, eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. It is by God's grace we believe and follow. And by God's grace we're kept. Notice what he says. I give... My sheep, eternal life, and they shall never perish. He kind of, he's, he's making it emphatically clear by saying it two different ways. I give them eternal life. How long is eternal life? I think it was Ronald Reagan, I think the way he said it was, the closest thing to eternal life is a government program. <laughs> they never go away. That was one of his struggles. How do we get rid of some of these things? That's not eternal life, though it may seem that way. Eternal life is eternal. It has no end. And so he goes on and says, and they shall never perish. And that word, you know, you could even say that differently. They shall absolutely not perish ever. He uses the most emphatic grammatical language he can to make it clear. I give them eternal life. Who has the authority? I can't give you eternal life. Only God gives eternal life. Do you see what he's saying of himself? He's saying, I give them eternal life. And how long is eternal life? Till your next sin? Till your next really big sin? Uh, Till whatever it might be? No. Then that's not eternal life. Eternal life means life that will not end. And then he makes it emphatic. And they will absolutely not perish unto eternity. So this is the... um, The doctrine that we've talked about, the doctrine of election. Here we see the doctrine of eternal security. That God gives eternal life and it is eternal. He gives life and he keeps his sheep. And again, I emphasize, and what he's saying is, it is Christ who gives the eternal life. Don't miss that. We see who Christ is. He is the God who gives eternal life. Then again, he makes it, and then he says further, and neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. There's further assurance. He gives them life. It's eternal life. It's a life that has no end. That's another way of saying eternal. And then he goes on, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. You know, we always go about, what, what about what ifs? Where are the exceptions? Where are the loopholes? And what he's saying is, they don't exist He keeps putting on layer upon layer upon layer of security. It's eternal life. It has no end. No one can snatch them out of my hand. We can't can't lose eternal life because we are not the ones that keep it. Now we can lose things right? Sometimes some of you with, you know, your, your kids, you, you know, you'll you'll have, so here uh, we're going to the park. Let me hold that for you. You're going to keep it because it'll be more secure theoretically in your hands. (laughs) Unlike an iPhone. Um, I'll hold that for you. I'll keep it secure. Notice what this is emphasizing. You know, some of our, some, some out there want to say that, you know, Christians are saved by grace through faith. But if they do something bad, they really backslide. They will lose their salvation. You see what's put. Where's the emphasis there? My salvation, therefore, is dependent on what I do. What's he saying? I give eternal life. Who's doing? Who's doing the doing? Jesus is. Who is keeping? Now, so does he give it to us and say, now you hang on to this? No. He says, here's eternal life, and I'm going to hang on to you. You are in my hand. And no one can pry my fingers loose because I'm the omnipotent God. I'm the one who can give eternal life, and I'm the one who keeps you. So our eternal security is not ours keeping ourselves, it's God keeping us. So it's not arrogant when I speak and say, I am absolutely confident that I'm going to be in heaven with Jesus Christ. That's not because I'm such a good person. It's because he's such a good savior and he keeps his promises. And he keeps me. Verse 29, he goes further. He keeps laying on the layers here. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. So again, notice. My Father has given them to me. Past tense. God's elect sheep were chosen by the Father and given to the Son. So you see, election is God's doing. And my salvation is God's doing. As Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. That's why I am secure in my salvation. If it's my doing, then I'm always wrestling with, have I done enough? And and have I done enough today to keep it? But if it's God's doing, and God has made a promise, case closed. But notice how Jesus is saying, I give them eternal life. It has no end. They shall never perish. I'm holding them. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And my Father, who has given them to me. So we as believers are, are the Father's gift to the Son. Can you imagine the scenario where God takes back a gift he gave to the Son? that's what it means for us to lose our salvation you see where the focus is it's not me i receive the gift he keeps me that's part of the gift and so so the problem with saying oh you can lose your salvation you have now made it man's work and your eyes are on man the bible says salvation is the lord's work and keeps our eyes on him My father's given to me no one, and and he's given them to me. And he's greater than all. Is there anyone that can overpower God the Father? You would have to pry the father's fingers off to take me out of his hand. And to use a a good theological expression, good luck with that. Not going to happen. Because I'm so good? No. Because he's so powerful and so good and gracious and kind. So we see why am I what's how has Jesus added more layers to this truth I'm I'm, I'm God's gift to the son God's not going to take back his gift to the son God is holding me in his hand God who can, who can escape the grasp of God? Some will say, well, I can if I choose. Well, then, then this isn't what it says. It says no one. And that, and that could be, it doesn't, and no, it doesn't say no man. It's just no one, no demon, no devil. No person can escape, can undo God's grasp of salvation. No one's able to snatch him out of my hand. No one's able to snatch him out of my father's hand. So he uses very similar language. What a picture. Here's this miserable wretch, me. For some reason, by God's grace, and there's no reason in me, I'm... Have you ever heard the expression, God's you know, gift to women? <laughs> we miserable sinners are the Father's gift to the Son. And that means the Son's going to treasure that. And he's got us in his hand. And he says, no one can snatch no one can snatch out of my hand. And then the father wraps his hand around that. How secure is that? When he says eternal life, no ending life, never perish life, kept by the son, kept by the father, is eternal security a biblical doctrine? If John 10 is in the Bible, it's a biblical doctrine. There's no other way you can handle this. And that's nothing for us to boast in. It is the most humbling thing in the world. It's all of God. That's why when we stand around the throne in heaven, it says the saints will cast their thrones before the, their crowns before the throne, saying, "God, the glory is yours." We are doubly kept, doubly kept. Uh, there's a story of a GM. Fact, GM for a while was doing these uh, shows, and, and they would um, they would bring in the these incredible things like uh, the Hope Diamond. And put it on display for these shows. Well, one time, one of these plants, they had the Hope Diamond there on display at some big festival or whatever they were doing. And all of a sudden, there was a storm and the lights went out. You can imagine the panic that cost. Instantly, all the security guards back to the diamond are facing outward, and all the truck drivers grabbed their flashlights and they ran and, and, and caused a you know formed a second ring. You'd have to get through the truck drivers and the security guards to get to the diamond, doubly kept. Or I was trying to think, can you imagine you've got the strong box that is impervious. There's nothing, no heat, no storm, no power can break this box. And you put your treasure in it. You lock up that box. And then you put it into a safe that is equally impervious. That's the picture of our salvation. Impervious because of who God is, not because of who we are. And God has promised. We are God's gift to the Son. And, and Jesus says, I give them eternal life and no one shall perish. And God keeps his promises. Second Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me, Silvanus and Timothy, was not yes and no. And him was yes and no. Verse 20, First Second Corinthians one twenty. For all the promises of God in him are yes and in him amen to the glory of God through us. God keeps his promises. Scottish minister told the story. Spurgeon recounts it. He was sitting by the bed of a godly old woman who was uh, on her deathbed. And... Um, and, and, and uh, she said her savior would never leave her to perish but he said but suppose that he did not keep his promise and you were to be lost there's a nice minister for you <laughs> and she answered well he would be a greater loser than I am and the minister said "You know what are you talking about she said well it's true I would lose my soul but God would lose his honor and his glory if he didn't keep his promise God has his very glory and reputation his name on the line if one of his people if one of his sheep should perish. And so what this woman's saying, if I should lose my salvation, God has a bigger problem than I do. Because he would have failed. Our salvation is not a reward we earn, it is we are God's gift. To the son and so to sum it all up jesus says in verse 30 i and my father are one and i could launch into a lot of grammar here but it's just noticing it's it's literally we are one and that we are emphasizes two persons one in the grammar of the greek here is singular two persons one essence that's the trinity The Holy Spirit's not being discussed here, but three persons, three distinct persons are one essence, God. With that, the Jews took up stones to stone him. Why? They recognized what he was saying. He has made himself equal with God. And that'll come up in our next section, which we'll stop here. But I want you to see their response tells you they get it. And they don't want to hear it. Again, showing they, the problem isn't with Jesus. They're not his sheep. So they don't hear his voice. and They won't follow him. Let's just notice too, quickly, there, there are two responses to Jesus in this passage. To hear and follow, or to reject him. To reject him, And rebel against him. There are only two options. And one of the questions we have to ask is, which are you? If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior, then what I've said to you today is ringing so true in your heart, and you're saying, Amen, to God be the glory, great things He has done. My salvation is His gift. I can't believe I'm His gift to the Son, but I am glad to be kept by the Son, kept by the Father to his glory. If you have yet to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to hear how wonderful it is to be one of his sheep. And if you hear his voice today, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But please understand, there's only two options. You're in his flock or you're out. You're with Jesus Christ or you're away from God. Only two options. Where are you? As believers... Please don't be confused by those that would say, yes, you can lose your salvation. That is not what the scripture says, and that's putting salvation as man's work instead of God's gift. Trust in the Savior, rest in Him. How do I know I'm a believer? With my heart of hearts, I have heard and received His word. I believe in Him. What's the evidence of that? I follow Him. If your feet don't match your ear, something is wrong. They hear and they follow. Do you see that in your life perfectly? No. Stumble, sometimes drift. But we've got to get back to the shepherd. We've got to get back to the shepherd. That's the nature of the sheep. If I can give you one more bit of evidence... The Bible says that those who trust Christ are part of his body. Can what what would happen if Jesus lost some of the fingers? Would that seem appropriate? What if he lost his hand and an arm? You know, it's that's a, that, could Jesus fail like that? Or to put it in another expression I heard uh, communicated. Uh, imagine you're swimming. Your head's above water, but your foot is underwater. Been there for 30, 40 minutes. Is your foot drowning? No. Why not? It's attached to the head, and, and the head's doing just fine, thank you. My security, my peace, my hope, and when I say hope, the biblical meaning of that is, is an assur- a settled assurance. My confidence is in Christ. And God did it. Ultimately, why is it I I understood and believed the gospel? Because I am God the Father's gift to God the Son, and because of that, I am am ever so precious. Some of you parents or grandparents know that. You get a a drawing that you you have to kind of wrestle. Which which end is up? (laughs) Remind me, who is this in here? But your grandchild gave it to you, and so you take that Monet off the wall and you put that up there next uh, in its place because of who gave it to you. We are precious to the Son because we are the Father's gift. He won't let us out of His hand, and the Father won't let us out of His hand. Is that great? some people say? But if you teach eternal security, then people feel like a liberty to sin. No, liberty to serve. One more illustration. The Golden Gate Bridge, which is out there in California. Uh, it was an, it's an incredible thing of how they built the thing. And apparently, they, they have painting crews. They keep painting all the way across and they go back and they start over. It's just an unending process. When they were building it, they had this minor problem is these guys kept falling off and dying. Finally, someone came up with the idea, let's put some nets to catch them. And sure enough, the death rate... Plummeted, if I can use that word. (laughs) (laughs) But they noticed something else. The productivity rate climbed. Now that the workers knew they were secure, they felt free to focus on their work. Eternal security is not a license to sin. It's a license to serve the Father who gave us such a precious gift. Our Father, our hearts and words cannot express our gratitude to you. But with grateful hearts, we thank you for your mercy to us and your grace. Father, how I pray, if any here have yet to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, in your mercy, open their hearts to believe and follow you. Father, if any of your children here have been wrestling with the issue of security, may they know their security is secure because you are secure. And Father, assured of our safety in Christ, increase our liberty to serve you with all our hearts. I pray it in Jesus' name.